We say together, amen. So this Shabbat, the seventh day of Passover, and uh, to the answer of the number one question that everybody had as they walked into the sanctuary, it's right there. It's right there. And the answer is, yes, we are breaking the fast of Pesach tonight with challah in the Reformed tradition. And so before we get to that point of breaking that fast of those seven days, I'm going to ask you if you feel open to going on a little trip with me tonight. I'd like to take you to the former Soviet Union and to China and Alcatraz and to Richmond across the bridge and then back to our own Seder table. You ready? You don't have to put your seatbelts on. It's not going to be that rocky of a ride. I promise. There's an amazing midrash about a place that is very iconic to us that used to imprison people. It's a story about that rock in the middle of the bay. It's called Alcatraz. The legend goes that it is impossible for a prisoner to escape from Alcatraz and to live. According to the lore, no human being could escape and make it through the shark-infested freezing cold waters from the prison to the shore of San Francisco. At least that's what I grew up thinking. If you saw the movie about it, you knew that no prisoner could ever swim from the rock to San Francisco. About seven years ago, Rabbi Bauer and I, well, Rabbi Bauer encouraged me to begin swimming in the bay. I think he wanted me to face a terrible fear I had, which was swimming in the bay. So we would swim at China Beach and Aquatic Park and Baker Beach, and then the day after Yom Kippur in 2008, he called me up that next morning, first day off, and he said, put on your wetsuit and meet me in front of the synagogue. So I did. He pulled up to the curb with his kayak on his minivan, and we drove to Aquatic Park. We kayaked out together to Alcatraz, and he said to me simply, jump in, swim back to San Francisco. He stayed with me the entire time in the kayak, paddling faithfully, because that's what friends do, and rabbis who exhort you to face your biggest fears. And every time I put my face back into the water, I was chanting in my mind the Kol Nidre, because it was the day after Yom Kippur, and guess what? There were no sharks, and I did not get hypothermia. Just me and Rabbi Bauer proving that not all stories, not all things we believe about the world or about ourselves are actually true, because sometimes they're just stories and the only way to figure out if a story about the world or about yourself is actually true is to find out yourself. This week on Wednesday, I returned to Alcatraz just after dawn, this time on a ferry, not on a kayak. I went to see the at-large exhibit by the Chinese dissident artist and activist Ai Weiwei. How many people here have seen the exhibit? It's only around for a few more weeks, so if you haven't seen it, I advise just swim out there to see it. <laughs> It is that intense and powerful. I knew very little about Ai Weiwei before I visited Alcatraz. Ai, Weiwei, Ai Weiwei's father was the Chinese poet Ai Ching, who was denounced during the anti-rightist movement. And in 1958, his family was sent to a labor camp in Beiduhong, where Ai Weiwei was one year old. They were sent and exiled into Shigong in 1961, where Ai Weiwei lived for the first 16 years of his life until Mao Zedong died, and at the end of the Cultural Revolution, his family returned back to Beijing. 
As a political activist, he has been very critical of the Chinese government's stance on democracy and human rights, and he was made most famous in 2008 following the Sichuan earthquake when all of those thousands of children died in the schools while the government buildings stood. And he went and he interviewed all of those parents who lost their one and only child in those schools, and as a result created this horrific expose of an art exhibit of hundreds of backpacks hanging on a school wall. In 2011, the Chinese government caught up with him and they arrested him in Beijing. And he was held for 81 days without any official charges being filed. And they alluded to allegations of economic crimes. But when he finally was released after 81 days, they beat him so severely that when he left prison, his skull was cracked and his brain was hemorrhaging. And they brought him to a hospital in Beijing and they did surgery and saved his life. But when they did the surgery, they shaved the very center of his head. And when he woke up and he looked in the mirror, he saw himself like that and he took his fingers and he made wings out of his hair, what was left. And so if you've seen around the city, the iconic image of the circle with the wings coming out of it, that was his depiction of what it felt like when he woke up and he saw this picture of himself, his skull with a strip down the middle and then his fingers making wings come out of his head. When you go to Alcatraz, and I'm sure you will after this sermon, to see this exhibit, you come upon seven massive, beautiful, and painful installations inside the prison walls that inexplicably made it there from China. Tons and tons of materials to make this exhibit. Ai Weiwei has never been to Alcatraz, and the fact that he could create an art exhibit in a place where he has never set foot is miraculous enough. He's still unable to leave China. The first piece of art that you encounter is a massive Chinese dragon with quotes woven into the tapestry from Prisoners of Conscience. You walk in the next room and it holds a Lego installation in a room about the size of four of these sanctuaries of 178 prison prisoners of conscience that are being held all over the world for simply speaking out about human rights. The third exhibit is in the same building. It is a tremendous metal wing that weighs 10,000 pounds. Remember, somehow it was taken out of China and brought to Alcatraz, shipped over here. A 10,000 pound metal wing that's made out of solar panels from Tibet and pots and pans. It's inside of the um, guard tower. And it's a wing, looking like it's from a bird, inside of a prison. And he made it to represent the plight of the Tibetan people in exile under the Chinese government and the fact that they can only live and sustain themselves if it's sunny because they live from these solar panels that heat their food. If there's no sun, they don't eat. The next exhibit, you go through um, the actual prison cells and in each prison cell, there's another piece of music from uh, music of dissent and you sit inside these individual prison cells looking through the bars and you listen to music that has been created by people who are in prison in some way. And finally, at the very end of the exhibit, you come into a room that looks like a library, and there are postcards that represent all of the 178 prisoners of conscience. And you can take the postcards, and you can write a postcard to the prisoner of conscience wherever they are being held. Since the exhibit opened, over 60,000 postcards have been sent, and 13 of the prisoners have been released around the world. It is the kind of art and the kind of activism that draws you in because it's beautiful, 
but you feel like you got burned a little bit because it inspires something terrible in you. It's something beautiful and terrible. Alcatraz stopped being in prison in 1963, 52 years ago. But it is Ai Weiwei's incredible way to give us art in prison that focuses our attention across the oceans, far, far from us, for people who are being imprisoned, people who are behind bars because they spoke out. So I sat down and I wrote three postcards, one to a man in Russia, another to someone who had spoken out defending Israel, who was behind bars in Iran, and then someone in this country. The postcards almost made it too simple. I didn't have to put on a stamp. I just put it in a post box there in Alcatraz, then get back on the ferry and go home and eat your matzah. So I did that, and I took with me a book of Ai Weiwei, and I got home and I went to sleep, and then the next morning I could not stop thinking about it. To what degree does it help us to change our life or even to sense our existence to really evaluate why? I think those questions cannot be escaped. Sometimes in history it's more hidden. Somewhere these can be very personal and individual questions. But in certain times, in certain places, your existence has to be associated with another person's situation. You have to make a reaction to the living conditions. It's not avoidable. You cannot just be blind about what is happening there. Such is the case in China. And then he wrote about his 81 days in prison. It's really life and death, not art. When they tell you your mother is 80 years old, but you cannot see her again, you can never call it performance art. Or when your son is three and they tell you that when you are released, he will be in his teens and can never recognize you as a father. You feel terrible inside to lose those chances. Each day, they tell you, you will spend your life, day after day, the same, minute after minute, the same. You just have to pay with your life for this so-called freedom that you're fighting for. There is no sense of justice there. Why do I have to do this with them? Why do I have to argue or play this game? Those postcards that I wrote and the words of Aweiwei that still echo in my mind reminded me of our own people's exile and imprisonment. In the 1980s, I was writing postcards to a man named Leonid Kelbert, who was a refusenik, a Jewish artist and activist who was not allowed free speech, and he was not allowed to leave the former Soviet Union. I marched on Washington in 1984, wrote to the government, sent him postcards, took money from our pushki, from our tzedakah box. I listened to my rabbi go on and on and on about the plight of Soviet Jews, and then the postcards worked. Soviet Jews actually went free, tens of thousands of them, and my own personal Soviet Jew, Leonid Kelbert, the one whose name I wore on a metal bracelet, the dissident, since 1979 when I became bat mitzvah, he actually made it out, and he went to the promised land and became a filmmaker in Tel Aviv. He went free from the former, Un former Soviet Union after 10 years living as a refusenik. But we're still at Pesach. Remember two years ago at Pesach, we didn't just have a shank bone and we didn't just have the karpas. Some of us had a bag of Skittles and a Snapple iced tea. Remember that on the Seder plate? My son Gabriel brought us Snapple iced tea and a bag of Skittles because it was two years ago that it was Trayvon Martin 
who we had to remember right before Pesach. Remember how shocked we were to hear that phone recording of a young black teenager being assaulted and then killed, and the shock and the anger in this country, and the waves, and then the ripples, and then it continues. And one of the prison walls on a small poster in Alcatraz was these words. I took a picture while I was listening to one of the dissonant music pieces when I was inside of a cell. It was a picture that said this. In October of 2013, the incarceration rate of the United States of America was the highest in the world at 716 people per 100,000 of the national population. The United States represents 5% of the world's population and houses 25% of its prisoners. Imprisonment of America's 2.3 million prisoners cost $24,000 per inmate and $5.1 billion of new prison construction each year, which consumes $60.3 billion. $60.3 billion, which is over two-thirds of the entire public education budget in this country. It's just a little snapshot of a poster that somebody had put up inside the now-defunct Alcatraz prison. And as Rabbi Bauer reminded us, this past Saturday in North Charleston, South Carolina, Officer Michael Slager shot eight bullets into Walter L. Scott's back and killed him as he ran from his car. The videotape from a bystander shows him dropping a taser, which he then reported the victim had taken from him. There are not enough postcards that can change any of this. And now I just bring you across the bay to Richmond because in 2007, Richmond, California was named America's ninth most dangerous city. It's hard to believe when we're sitting here right next to Presidio Terrace, right here in Pacific Heights, that we live across the bay from America's ninth most dangerous city. Desperate for a different approach to law enforcement, the new police chief, Chris Magnus, fired everybody he considered a bad cop, suspended all stop and frisks, and improved community relations in the East Bay. City Hall launched an experimental program that identified residents most likely to commit serious crimes and provided them with a mentor and a monthly stipend of between $500 and $1,000, and Richmond's homicide rate since 2007 has dropped by 66%, the lowest in 33 years. The officers involved in shootings has declined to less than one a year. Did any of you know that about Richmond? It was shocking to me. So now, you know what I mean. I took you on a very long trip. I think there was some turbulence, but we come back to the beginning. It's day seven, from Alcatraz to China, the former Soviet Union, Richmond, and then back to our Seder table. All places of slavery being bound, yearning for freedom, all of us dreaming for a little bit of a more humane humanity. And so we return to the original story of Pesach in the Torah and in the Haggadah. And the book of Exodus begins with a bang, with the big character of Pharaoh. But I think he really plays a bit part, unless you think of him in the Ten Commandments with Yul Brenner as the big Pharaoh. I think he's a small part because the more dramatic, bigger part is the one part I want you to take away from this Pesach, which is the part about the midwives of Shifra and Pua. I think they're the real reason that we have Pesach. The first recorded instance of civil disobedience in our history comes from Shifra and Pua, the midwives to the Hebrew slaves who were instructed, no, they were commanded to kill all of the Israelite slave boys, and they don't deliberate, they don't deliberate, they don't have a conversation, there's nothing recorded about the process, they simply refuse to do evil. And they report back to Pharaoh, there was no way 
to annihilate these Jewish slaves, the Israelite people, because the Hebrew women are so vigorous that by the time the midwives get there, they've already given birth and they're back in the fields working. He was not very bright, Pharaoh, it turns out. <laughs> or maybe he was, because what he said next is, I am going to compel and inscript all of the people of Egypt to do this. And what we learn from Shifra and Pua is it takes a tiny bit of resistance, even if your leader, even if the ruler, even if the person who says that they are God, tells you to do something that you can't do. It will take an entire population of people looking away who are in fear to make something like a genocide happen. So, as I said, we're thankful we're Reformed Jews on this seventh day of Pesach, because we're going to say Motzi. But as we take a bite of our first chametz, of this beautiful challah, it's delicious and it's sweet, take to heart what is supposed to be living in us for seven days every single year. A desire to look away from pain, suffering, and the ability to pretend that Pharaoh is dead and gone, and simultaneously what the Haggadah and what the Torah says, which is that we're part of a tradition which forces us to confront the reality of the stranger, the less fortunate, the less powerful, the less educated, the impoverished, our neighbors, those who are still in prison, and even us. So this Shabbat, I say, be afraid, but also be brave. Shabbat Shalom.